So it's an entrepreneurial real estate group. We find great partners. They run their own businesses. And, you know, what I tell them is you guys can really do whatever you want to do. But if you need money, you got to come see me. So every Monday I go through every deal. I go through every project. But I really let them be president of their company. They run their businesses. They hire. They recruit. You know, when they want a new project to do, I get involved. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on October 26th, live at his office in Dallas, Texas, is a conversation with Ross Perot Jr., the chair of the Hillwood Companies. We pushed the release of this episode back a few weeks to bring in our special Leading Voices episode with Byron Carlock that talked about the present state of the market. And we're also bringing another special episode in this, is this a recession conversation? This time with Mike VK, president of East Still Secured, and Chris Hartung from the Fisher Center of Real Estate and also a principal at Terra Firmer Asset Management, a REIT investment fund. Speaking with Ross was a huge privilege and a pleasure and an opportunity for a Leading Voices conversation with a very different type of real estate leader, particularly since Ross plays so broadly and at such a high level in the business. You all know about Ross and his father, who now looms large again in our national conversation as the last third-party candidate who had a real run at the White House and their work at EDS and Perot Systems. Since selling Perot Systems to Dell, Ross's work has been through the Hillwood families of companies, much of which is in real estate. They're best known for developing the giant Alliance Project in Fort Worth, the Victory Mixed Use and Sports Development in Dallas, and their track record established along the way in building complicated public-private deals across the country, and also in Poland. This is definitely a chairman more than a CEO conversation. Ross talks about managing CEOs leading their own businesses within the Hillwood family. For me, the most fascinating part of the conversation was Ross's deep engagement around the topics of creation and innovation where Hillwood finds new ground and helps fund the exploration of new technologies and approaches to problem solving. Given the breadth of their work from environmental remediation to logistics to the development of a sports stadium to working with local governments on a PPP project and then global politics and defense in Poland, Ross has a pretty amazing job and clearly brings joy and intellectual excitement and curiosity to his work. I have my own joy in doing these podcasts and in doing search at ZRG. I was talking with a friend who runs one of the portfolio companies at one of the private equity firms last week. And after about a minute of niceties, we just jumped into a conversation walking across the aspects, drivers, and challenges of that company's business. I know just enough, and I'm certainly curious enough, and through these conversations get to deepen my knowledge and perspective almost every time. I get to do that with leaders in my ZRG day job, and you kind of get to be in these conversations via Leading Voices. And through listening to the Leading Voices podcast, hopefully you're getting some of the magic of these broad perspectives on the real estate business. Ross and I only got to spend a few minutes talking about his dad and that last big third-party candidacy. After our interview, I walked through the Ross Perot Museum on the ground floor of the Hillwood Building and was blown away remembering how Ross Perot cut through the politics and the BS in his run, which was so appealing. There was a great article in the Times this week where they asked people across the political spectrum who they want to run for president. Almost all were centrist people seeking centrist politics to just get stuff done. Echoes of that in this conversation with Ross Jr. Happy holiday season to you and your family. 
I'll keep the request going, but please rate Leading Voices on your favorite podcast app. If you do not follow and subscribe, please check that box in your app so you'll automatically get our releases. Please share an episode with a friend or a colleague. And as always, please feel to email me with comments, guest suggestions, reactions, or questions to mslepin at crgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Ross Perot Jr. So Ross Perot Jr., welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. We've met very briefly at the Fisher Center Conference a couple of times, and I've long wanted to have you as a guest. And we're here today in your office in Dallas on October 24th want to talk a bit about your life and your career. I want to talk about strategic matters and what's happening in the economy. Sure. What's happening in the world a little bit because you have some views on that. And I want to hear about real estate development. So we have a ton to talk about. Let me have you introduce yourself briefly. A man who needs not too much introduction. Well, thank you for being here. And I'm honored to be on the show or the podcast. That's good. And I'm Ross Burrow Jr., chairman of Hillwood. And have been in the real estate business about 40 years and uh, love the industry. Like most of us in the business, you, you've got to love it. Yeah. It's a great industry and it's a wonderful group of men and women in this industry. I think it's true. And talk about what is Hillwood. We're going to talk about how you got into it in a little bit. Okay. Hill- but what's the breadth of your real estate? Sure, I mean, Hillwood is a real estate development company. Yeah. And we really started out in the great SNL crisis. Mm-hmm. And we put the Hillwood brand on it in 1988, but we really were started, we started in real estate in the 70s. And if you look at our family's history, we built a big campus for EDS in the late 70s. Was that in Texas? Yeah, here. On, yep. it's, if, if you know the Dallas crowd on Forest Lane, yeah. mid-70s, 73, 74, we opened the Forest Lane campus. EDS was growing so quickly, right. and Dallas wouldn't give us any additional zoning on the campus. And my dad said, okay, I'm going to Plano. And that became what is now Legacy, mm-hmm. which is almost as large as downtown Dallas. So he, his vision was the next downtown in North Texas. He has done that with Legacy. And it's where Toyota went, J.C. Penney went, millions of square feet. And it's a wonderful new downtown, sub kind of edge city mm-hmm. in Dallas. And that was his vision. So we've been around real estate. Then we had the SNL crisis. We're landowners. We bought and sold land. Right. And we started the alliance program, and the model would be, we thought we would, you know, entitle land. And I really thought I'd sell land to Crow Residential to do our communities, and I'd sell it to Lincoln to do the warehouses. But they were out of business. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were in financial trouble. Right. And what it did is it forced me to become a real estate developer. I didn't think I'd be a developer. Right. You'd think we, you'd I be thought I'd just person. be landowner and kind of master plans and sell off sites, mm-hmm. but we had to, to build communities. But because of the recession, you had incredible talent. So we hired some guys from Crow Residential. Great story. They came over. Ron White came over, started a program. He was a Crow. He brought Fred Balda, who's a Crow. Uh-huh. Fred Balda runs a program today 30 years later. Wow. And we built 90 communities now across the country. Then we started Mike Barry Night Alliance, started doing warehouses together. Mm-hmm. And so Mike's got a big warehouse program, and that brought Todd Platt on board. And right. Todd said, let's build warehouses across the country. I said, great. And Todd built a team to build warehouses across the nation. And we're building 29 million square feet right now. So it's really become a big business that Todd has done. Uh-huh. Mike Berry's got a little bit of everything. because warehouses, multifamily, retail, office. And so Mike's got a full development company on his own. Uh-huh. Todd's got a big industrial company. 
But then we're in the oil and gas business. We have a big oil and gas program under the Hillwood brand. Uh-huh. Then we have a venture capital business also called Perot Jane, do lots of early stage venture capital work. Uh-huh. We have an urban program that develops in downtown Dallas, and that's the team building the new Goldman headquarters. So it's an entrepreneurial real estate group. We find great partners. They run their own businesses. And you know what I tell them is you guys can really do whatever you want to do, but if you need money, you got to come see me. So every Monday I go through every deal, I go through every project, but I really let them be president of their company. They run their businesses, they hire, they recruit. You know, when they want a new project to do, I get involved. Mm-hmm. And then I, I obviously look at the quality and I come in to see what they're going to do on the master plans, et cetera. But it's a wonderful team, great talent. We built this building we're in. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah. The most amazing project we did for a real estate developer is I was asked to be chairman of the Air Force Memorial in Washington. And so to be able to build a memorial to the United States Air Force at our nation's capital, working through that incredible process. Right. But it was the Hillwood team that brought the energy and the talent to get the Air Force Memorial built. And it's a very unique project that we've done and one that we're extremely proud of because how many developers get to build on the nation's capital? Because this memorial is 270 feet high. So it penetrates the skyline of the capital. Right. And it's, it's, I mean, you see the Washington Monument and the Air Force Memorial. And so it's really a special program. Oh, that's amazing. So talk about the amount of real estate, just where is it? And because you mentioned warehouses and how much you're building, but what is the portfolio? Do you hold the portfolio long-term? What's the land holdings? And then what do you do internationally? So Todd Platt's grown the business into Europe. And mm-hmm. so if you look at Mike Berry runs Alliance, yeah. 27,000 acres. At 27,000 acres, we have 530 companies there today. Mm-hmm. 63,000 people go to work there every day. And it's only half developed. Mm-hmm. And we've got you know, thousands of homes to go. We've got millions of square feet of retail, about 35 million square feet of industrial to go, four to five million of office to go. So it, it is a big long-term program. And so that's what Mike does. Todd, and so as the investment bankers love to joke with me, uh-huh. I kind of tell them what we're doing. They go, wow, you're long Texas. I go, yeah, <laughs> we are long Texas. So our big, deep bets are in this state. Yeah. When you leave Texas, we've got big investments, but they're not near 30, 40 year projects like we have in Texas. Uh-huh. We've been in California now for 30 years. We've built great businesses in California, but we're kind of more of a traditional developer. We'll buy a site, get entitled, build a building. So your great businesses in California are one-off buildings versus what you have here right. but are then, but massive then, projects. But then one of our really core strengths are partnerships. Mm-hmm. So we teamed up with the city of San Bernardino. They had the old Norton Air Force Base. Because of our aviation development experience, mm-hmm. they said, would you come develop Norton Air Force Base? And we've been doing that now for 20 years. We're now on March Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. Just finished two million square feet for Target at March. Mm-hmm. We're on Cecil Field in Florida, an old Navy base. So we're doing public-private partnerships with the public sector and private partnerships with big landowners is how we kind of scale around the country. Uh-huh. Uh, and then around the world in Poland, uh, we do work with the Polish government, and the Polish government's got land sites. And so we'll team up with them and develop their land in Poland, mm-hmm. in addition to normal one-off sites in Poland. And how long had you been in real estate? How long were you out of the Air Force at that point oh, in gosh, time? Oh, gosh, I would. Well, I did. I started in real estate 
so I, so I was with my father as he built his projects. Okay. And being the only son and the oldest of five children and all my, and with all my sisters, right. dad and I kind of ended up always together. Uh-huh. And so, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I go to work on my dad, but that means I went to data centers. I mean, how many people, how many kids go to data centers in the 60s? Yeah, in the 60s, not I mean, the same not, No one. Opinion. I mean, if people right. say, what is your dad doing? I tell them, they go, what's that? Right. And so I'm in data centers. I'm collecting punch cards. I'm hanging out with my dad. Right. You know, and then my dad always had me with him. He'd invite me to meetings. You know, I knew all of his partners. And so it was a very close relationship. And my father and I, you know, we didn't talk about sports mm-hmm. growing up. We talked about business. You know, we, we kind of fight over the business sector of the paper every morning. I mean, uh-huh. we both, he taught me a love for business. Uh-huh. I love business, and that's kind of what we did together. Uh-huh. And so I've been around it a long time. 81, I got out of college. So we did EDS yeah. and sold EDS in 84 to General Motors. Yeah. Then we started Pro Systems in 1988. And I was a co-founder with my father at Pro Systems, and I later became CEO of Pro Systems okay. and later became chairman of Pro and sold it to Dell. So it we, it's parallel track. We okay. had real estate, we had technology, we had oil and gas. And so we did all of it together. Mm-hmm. And then I really started to focus on real estate for, as I mentioned, all the developers disappeared. Right. And so I had to become a developer. So we're mix, mixing up timeframes yeah. here because you were also in the Air Force for six years and maybe that's why you're I, working. I, well, I was a reservist. Okay. So I was, I was two, two and a half years active duty training. Right. Then I was a reservist. So I could work and be in the Air Force at the same time. And so 1981, I got out of school and started doing land deals. Uh-huh. In 1982, I flew the helicopter around the world. Yeah. March of 83, I went in the Air Force. I got my wings in the summer of 84. I came home May, uh, May of 85 and was flying in the reserves. And so... I was gone training for a while, but I fairly quickly I got back into the real estate and working full time. That's a little bit of the of the sequence. Okay, fair. And then you buy this huge property. So Alliance, you, you're buying land. Hundreds of acquisitions. Right. So we start out at twenty five hundred acres, and now we have twenty seven thousand. Okay. And so we would buy every cycle, mm-hmm. and so it was not one big piece of land and one big vision. It was extraordinarily opportunistic. Mm-hmm. And we kind of bootstrapped it. And mm-hmm. we never got too far out of our skis. We never had too much debt. I mean, all that land is debt free. Mm-hmm. And we just sort of bought it, traded into it, deal at a time. Right. And we'd build a building. If we need to buy land, we'd sell the building and buy some land. Mm-hmm. And so we wouldn't take on a lot of debt. And so in Alliance, our buildings are long-term hold. Mm-hmm. We sell some but we really keep it for a long-term portfolio at Alliance. Uh-huh. Todd with the industrial team will keep buildings, but then he'll also package buildings up and he'll sell buildings. And so Todd does a little bit of both. Uh-huh. So depending on the business leader, uh-huh. they can have different strategies on how they want to execute. Fair deal. And I want to go back to Alliance because what I'm interested in in this part of the conversation is thinking through what it is to build a town it was an industrial town or commercial town, but also residential. And when you started, was your vision you were going to sell off lots, but then all of a sudden you're a master plan builder. Right. What was the vision for that? And also the airport got built there too, I think. Well, the airport, the airport is, so we had a land position, to mention the land strategy. And then the FAA came in. We bought this 2,500 acres as land investment. Mm-hmm. And we bought it from a family that had owned it 100 years. Right. 
and the family would do non-recourse financing. So mm -hmm. down payment, non-recourse. And we bought it because it was not North Dallas. That SNL boom drove prices up so high on the North Dallas quarter that the North Fort Worth quarter was about 10 cents on the dollar compared to North Dallas. And North Fort Worth was the last big piece of Dallas-Fort Worth to be developed. If you look at DFW Air, look at the map behind right. you. Yeah, I see. That Northwest sector, uh -huh. that's what we're filling in. Uh -huh. And so the airport, the FAA came in and said, look, we need, we're going to build four new airports in Dallas-Fort Worth. They wanted this airport, and all four are off of DFW Airport. So the first was Southwest, Sphinx. Mm -hmm. The second, Northwest, was Alliance. The uh -huh. third was rebuilding McKinney. And the fourth was down by Midlothian. So they were hub airports off of DFW so that DFW could grow and only focus on moving people, not the military, not manufacturing, not a lot of cargo. Right. And so we kept DFW pure. We became the industrial airport of those four. Got and it. And we became a much bigger airport than what the FAA realized it would be and could be. Mm -hmm. But it's pure public-private partnership, mm -hmm. and it became a major airport in the country. Which would then drive massive growth to industrial in that property, which you... To think we saw this is not an accurate view. This was a Thank bunch you. of young, <laughs> hard-charging guys. Yeah. We wanted to get an airport built, uh -huh. and we were entrepreneurial. Uh -huh. But the airport was great. But the first deal we announced, with all this hoopla of the air... This is the largest zoning case in the Texas history... I mean, we tripled the size of Fort Worth with this zoning case. I mean, it had a huge amount of attention. Right. And strategically, we're now the largest taxpayer in Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. The Alliance companies really have provided great financial support for Fort Worth. And so this is what we have today. But the first deal we announced uh -huh. was a railroad deal. Really? Because we had the BN Santa Fe main line on the west side of the airport. And it was in Santa Fe Railroad. They said, look... We need auto distribution. Uh -huh. I said, okay, you know, auto distribution. We never thought about that, but okay, we'll do an auto distribution deal. And it turned out like it's a little 50-acre auto distribution, but that led to one of the largest inner motor yards now in the country. Yeah, I bet. So if you think about what drives our industrial, it's not the airport. It's the railroad. Now, the, rail, the airport's icing on the cake, uh -huh. but it's that inner motor yard in a million containers a year going to 2 million containers a year. Uh -huh. We're connected to every major West Coast port in North America. I mean, it is a phenomenal facility. Now, the airport has got FedEx, it's got Amazon, it's got good air freight. The air freight doesn't drive the volumes of railroad. And so the, I mean, those, you know, that we had 16 warehouses now going up around Alliance today. Some are ours, some are other developers, but uh -huh. it is an industrial boom I give the railroad most of the credit, but we never envisioned a railroad, Matt. Right. I mean, we just had to work hard. We saw it, took advantage of it. And it's like all of us in business, we've got to listen to the client. Don't be so locked in on what your vision is. Let the market help improve that vision. And the market really told us what to do at the airport. The market told us, don't build a little airport. The market said, we need an industrial airport. So that's why it's a bigger airport. Yeah, it's interesting. One thing I appreciate in the conversation is that you're not looking back saying that you had the entire vision all along and knew what would happen because you're the smartest guy in the world. Because I hear that too many times. No, 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 we're not. We're not. I mean, we're hardworking. We listen. Right. 
the credit for the airport goes to the FAA. Uh -huh. It was not our idea. It was a classic public-private partnership. And so now we helped make it better. Right. And we used private money to speed it up. And when we started working on the airport to groundbreaking was 18 months. And we opened, so we started in, in early 87, we opened in 89, fastest airport they've ever built. <laughs> I mean, because you, we went in there and helped them. And we had a great partnership. Every Friday, we'd meet with the FAA and say, look, here's what we're doing, do you approve it? So they kind of, every, we got their unofficial approval every week on the plans. Right. So when we submitted the plans, they knew exactly what it was. They'd already given their comments. We gave them exactly what they wanted. That's why it went through the approval so fast. And the other unintended consequence is your expertise becomes being able to replicate that, knowing how to work with public-private partnership in now in Poland. 100%, because every time we had an obstacle right. that we would climb, we became smarter. So we mastered public-private partnerships very early in our career. We mm -hmm. mastered working with cities very early. And then that Alliance brand we could always, everywhere we went, every new city I went to around the country, I'd say, look, call them Air Fort Worth. Right. Isn't, you know, y'all call your peers. You know, we're in 50, 60 cities right now developing. Right. Call any mayor and say, what do you think? Mm -hmm. Does Hillwood keep their word? Do they deliver a great product? We deliver beautiful buildings, jobs, and taxes everywhere we go. Mm -hmm. And most cities kind of like beautiful buildings, jobs, and taxes. Yeah, that's a good thing. But we deliver it. And so... We learned how to do partnerships at Alliance that we perfected, but then we came into downtown Dallas and did the Victory Program and did mm -hmm. the Arena Program. Mm -hmm. That's where we mastered Brownfield Redevelopment. And so now you're creating a place more than creating volume, if, if I can make that distinction, Which, consciously creating place. So a joke, Alliance, we kind of earned our masters. Uh -huh. Victory, we earned our doctorate. Oh, I bet. <laughs> because, I mean, if that was land that had not changed hands for 100 years. Uh -huh. It was the railroad. It was the power plant. It mm -hmm. was meatpacking. I mean, it was a part of our city everybody had forgotten about. But that's when we did our focus groups. Where would the voters want an arena? We said, look, the voters didn't want an arena. They did want a big development, and they did want that site cleaned up. So the voters told us, you go clean up that site and you clean up the front door to Dallas, we'll give you our vote. Now we had 125,000 votes cast, we won by 1,642. So mm -hmm. it was like barely got their vote. Right. But this is in January, there's a January vote of 1996. A, a single purpose January vote right. is not easy to win, but great team and we got there. And so that's where we learned how to do the public-private partnership and the deep EPA partnerships of how do you clean up Brownfield? And we won EPA's top award in 2001. We won the Phoenix Award mm -hmm. for Brownfield Redevelopment. So look at our practice all through Europe. Look at our practice now in the United States. Our client base, we used to build a million square feet on the edge of town. Well, now the clients want a million square feet right in the middle of town. Yeah, different big. And if you're doing middle of town, million square feet, you're doing Brownfield. And so we're now putting a million square feet for Amazon at the old Detroit fairgrounds for the city of Detroit. We've trolled down old Packard auto factories and bring on modern distribution buildings. You know, old Pratt & Whitney jet engine factories we've torn down to bring in modern distribution. So when you see an old factory with a brownfield problem and a pollution problem, we're not afraid of it. 
because we have climbed that mountain and we've learned how to do it and we've learned how to work with the EPA to get it cleaned up. So the practice evolves every time there's a challenge, you pick up a new skill that in effect opens up land sites all over the country and all through Europe for you. Mm-hmm. In Europe, in Germany, you know, the, I mean, we're building on sites. This is third and fourth generation development. We're building on sites before we build, we've got to bring in the German bomb technicians and they have to search from bombs from World War II. Holy cow. I mean, but this is like, okay, we've kind of hadn't quite seen that one, but we know how to do it, but we're not afraid of it. And especially in California, if you're going to develop in California, you've got to be pretty big with a balance sheet to put up with a lot of bureaucracy. And we're doing brownfield in California, which is tough. But once you get it done, you've got built-in value because few people have the time and the patience to go through it. Time, patience, and expertise pays off. And you have to have a balance sheet to to fight through it. Mm -hmm. And so that's what this team is able to do now. And are you doing many adaptive reuses in any of these industrial buildings? Does that ever work in the places you've done it? To answer your question directly, with new warehouses, Uh it's got to be new. Right, that's it's got to be warehouse. high clearing site. I mean, it's it's got to be efficient. And right. these things, these buildings we're doing for some of our clients, these are five hundred million dollar warehouses. I mean, these things are huge, hundred foot clear, five floors of mess, filled with robots. I mean, this is not easy development that you can't really do reuse there. But I'll show you a building in Germany we did, where we had to protect like a three hundred year old water tower. Right, and so. We have a brand new building going all the way around an old 300-year-old water tower. And I say, you know, for warehouse guys, that's pretty elegant because we don't do, we're not really known to be elegant in the industrial business. I, I don't, cool. Yeah, I was thinking adaptive reuse at Victory in, because it's in town right. and there's more mixed use than I'm thinking for industrial. Which But we had nothing worth keeping. Okay. An old power plant, uh-huh. old grain silos, uh-huh. and we took it all down and put in modern modern uses. Uh-huh. And how's that fit with the sports team? How's that work together it, in terms of the well, synergies it works, between? It works really well because you, it, that sports teams bring the energy. But what you like is that the, is the arena, well run, is energized six or seven days a week because you've got concerts, you've got events, yep. and it drives traffic and business. And so people really like it. If you do it right, this is a real art. It's to, right because you it, can do it real wrong too. You can too. do it wrong, but if you do it right, it can bring great energy into a city. Do you think that these new parks will be like Fenway in 100 years that will still love them? Or will they be like Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia where you want to tear it down? When we built the arena, we went and benchmarked buildings, all the new buildings across the country. They went around the world for that very question you just asked. Because the thinking of the time was you build a building for 30 years and then you tear it down and start over. Right. And I was like 40-something. I go, wait a minute, 40, 70. I'm still around. I don't want to do this again. So I said, how do we do a 50-, 60-year building? And so if you look at that arena we built, the American uh-huh. Airlines Center, it is a very, very deep, complicated building that gives you phenomenal use. Uh-huh. And, you know, everything we said, okay, what's the limiting factor? How do you get in trouble? You know, we have huge amount of it's cable trays. Because we knew we'd have to rewire the building all the time. So right. it is so easy to rewire because we've built huge cable trays all through the system. We put in loading docks. You know, people don't pay attention to it, but we've got great loading docks where you can do two events at once, loading and unloading, so the building is never empty. Yeah. That's a big revenue event Huge. to keep your building. So you've got great loading docks. And then I challenge people, where's the back door? 
The American Airlines Center has four front doors. It is fully integrated into the downtown structure without a back door mm-hmm. because it's all buried. So we put money into it to give it, and then the suite ring, the high revenue suites, all those suites can be torn out and reconfigured very easily. And so it's none of this stuff is very difficult to keep it adapted. It's like FF&E every 10 years in a hospitality environment. You, you keep it cleaned keep up. It but, but let's say, so what, what goes out of date? Arenas, 15,000, 16,000 were a little small. Mm-hmm. Then we got some up to 23,000, a little too big. For basketball, we're about 17,000, 18,000. For hockey, a little bit less. Right. So we kind of hit the sweet spot on seating. Mm-hmm. We wanted to keep it very intimate and tight. Yep. And so we put a lot of work into lowering the ceiling and keeping it more of a tight, fun experience, but with huge revenue streams. Right. You know, over 200 suites. We originally started out, all the experts said put in 100. We had such strong suite sales, we mm-hmm. said, well, hell of that, keep selling suites. And we kept, we kept modifying the suite ring right. to have more revenue. So it's hard to imagine what will be coming in the future that we can't adopt into the building today. For sure technology, but it's designed for new technology. It's easy to get in and out. It flows well, it handles people well. So I think we're good for a while in this building. So I don't think it's going to go out of date. A lot of those buildings Uh that did go out of date were not done by good developers. They're done by cities. They're done by bureaucracies. They weren't done with a true private sector developer Uh that was worried about long-term ownership. Right. Broken into by Camden Yards. You know, a couple of first stadiums that did it. Hopefully no one's going to make that old mistake again because now we've learned that technology. Right. Um, so change the subject. Talk about industrial. Talk about logistics. Everything I read is it's going to slow, or it is slowing. slowing. Now the economy's slowing. Sure. But how much has industrial slowed? And I still think it's a long term because we haven't yet reworked the distribution system of the country. We were on an e-commerce. I wouldn't say boom, but a good e-commerce path. Right. COVID hit. It became a boom. And so we were very busy taking care of our e-commerce client base building through COVID. Now you're built out. Now we're going to have probably a real recession. Uh Uh, As you know, interest rates, you raise interest rates like this in real estate, everything's going to stop. So you've got projects literally being canceled coast to coast, industrial projects, Mm because it doesn't pencil. And you've got now developers that can't get equity. They can't get debt. The banks are pulling back. The regulators are leaning on the banks. So you've got a hard another six to nine months in front of us as we go through the transition to find out where will the interest rates be. And whenever Powell stops, now we'll know, all right, that's the new rule book. These are the rules. You can build your business off that current rate. So Amazon led e-commerce. UPS is big. FedEx is big. But now you've got Target is big. You've got Home Depot is big. You've got a lot of companies catching up on their current e-commerce strategy. Right. But Matt, the real boom coming is reshoring of American industry. Mm-hmm. So you've got a whole new wave coming is we have to rebuild the North American supply chain to where we're not so dependent on China. So this is a big structural move. And you've got this, I mean, we're riding this renewable boom. Mm-hmm. And we've got a company called MP Materials, a $700 million building, building magnets at Alliance. Magnets for electric engines. Okay. I never thought we'd be in the magnet business, <laughs> but this is where... Magnets are fun. 
They are, but I mean, but, but magnets are complicated. Yeah. I didn't realize all the different grades of magnets. Uh-huh. And then I went out to the MP Materials Rare Earth Mine in California. It's, a, it's the richest rare earths in the world we have in our country. I mean, we can, we can climb this mountain and bring the renewable supply chain home. And if you don't bring renewable supply chain home, it's never going to get there. Right. You're never going to give our energy future in effect to the Chinese. And that's why the strategic fault with renewables today, not made in North America. Yeah. You're going to need a North American supply chain. So we're doing the, the MP materials renewable. We've got another renewable company coming in that makes products on solar, and they've got to be in the United States. Yeah. And so we're seeing the reshoring movement, the renewable movement. Now, we're not in the battery factories, but you've got big battery factory deals coming. The other thing, Matt, that's great for industrial is what's happening in Europe. We're seeing lots of German deal flow. The German auto factories have got to leave Germany because they don't have the energy. And they're coming into Texas because we've got 170 years of natural gas still. We've got long-term reliable energy to feed the industrial base, and you're seeing it with the renewable crowd and the battery crowd, and our chip boom mm-hmm. now going on. We've got $150 billion in new chip factories in Texas. Mm-hmm. So the industrial market, it'll slow as you get rates figured out. You've got a nice e-commerce business. You've got a nice reshoring business. You've got a nice renewable business, and you've got the chip business. So all those chip manufacturers need warehouses. Uh-huh. You know, all their suppliers need warehouses, so the industrial market, it's difficult to envision a, not a really bright future for industrial. Now, Matt, the challenge uh-huh. is land. Lots of cities, land entitlement is getting tougher and tougher, especially when you're going into the inner city to get these sites. And that's where we really excel as public-private partnership and what we discussed on how you get sites entitled. Yes. So let's go back to this because it's really interesting. So you're talking about a boom for real estate coming after this moment in time once interest rates settle down. Back to historic norms, to be honest. This, so. Look, I, I told our team, I said, okay, go back to 05, pull yeah. the performance for 05, and remind everybody we did okay in 05. Yeah. I mean, we did okay in 05. We did okay in the 90s. I said, don't. I mean, this cheap money was a drug. Yeah. We all knew it was a drug. Now it's gone. Mm-hmm. You're back to the real world. Mm-hmm. Go to work. Mm-hmm. And we will figure this out. So the other thing you're describing, though, is a real estate boom coming out of this moment. But you're really talking about boom to the economy as we onshore those things that were outsourced at an economic price right. with, with inter-country risk, That's right. global risk. So globalization will be there, but not in the same way. You're going to have, we'll have a resilience. type of globalization, but, it, but, it, but the China risk now is so great. Right. And what she did this week, which is kind of build a war cabinet. Right. And the moderates are gone. Yeah. You saw it very visibly push the moderates out. So you have, you're going to have more and more friction, which, which in my mind doesn't make sense because why would China hurt their economy so much? Mm-hmm. Why would they hurt the Western world is their client? Right. Why would they be threatening the Western world when they need us to buy their products and equipment? And so I'm not sure how long China can be that belligerent right. before they kind of wake up and say, wait a minute. We had a great thing going. Yeah, we sure did. I mean, China was rolling. They had a great 30-year run, and the Chinese people now are used to prosperity. Why are they going to stop it? 
Let me ask you the same question. We have to do a Putin thing, and also you're in Poland, sure. so I want to think about that. But why belligerence from him as well? That's just purely ego. It's easier. He had less of economy to play with. But When I talked to the intelligence experts and foreign policy experts, they said, Ross, this is your Western brain. Your Western brain doesn't understand how a Putin thinks. You don't know how she thinks. Right. I mean, you're a grown-up, civilized man, peaceful country, democracy. We treat people fairly. That's not the environment of these countries. And so I don't know why Putin did it. There's no logical reason in the world for Putin. I mean, Matt, he's lost. Yeah. He's truly already lost. Now it's just a matter of how bad the loss going to be. And it's going to be brutal, and, he's, and his atrocities are as bad as any you can imagine, what yeah. he's done to the Ukrainian people. But how can you do that? But then what's interesting, Matt, we got to watch, how can the rest of the world not condemn Putin as much as we had? We have allies that are not condemning him. And so it's interesting to see how the world really works. Mm-hmm. And so, and then, again, we don't understand she. Mm-hmm. He had a great economy. He had a great thing going. Why did he break it? <laughs> Why did he break the country with COVID? Why wouldn't he bring in a Western vaccine? Right. Get the people vaccinated and go back to work. Mm-hmm. The Chinese vaccine failed. I think they're afraid to tell the people it failed. And so they lock them up. Well, now the Chinese people are very upset. And think of all the businessmen upset. And there, I mean, there's so much anger in China now directed at Xi. You know, he's going to have to be very, very careful because he has broken the place. Right. But we have that in a lot of countries. So we're not used to that here because we mm-hmm. have a democracy. We, and we change. You know, right. everybody gets mad at Trump, we throw him out. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, the people, the good part about our system, if you want to change it, you can. Mm-hmm. Go to work, study the issues, vote, find the candidates that you like. And we can all see that we have the power to do that. Now, we complain about it, but we can make changes here. These other countries, they can't make changes. It's true. So we'll segue. We're going to come back to real estate in a minute, but I can't do this without talking about your dad. Great. And I can't talk about the great sucking sound. And he's the last time there was a third-party candidate. And it is true. I talked to, like, every person I talked to, all my friends, we're all moderates, we're all in the middle, and we say, gosh, you know, if it's if it's Trump and Biden running again, like give me someone in yeah, the middle and let's just go get it done. Well, there, yeah, there are lots of people that say, "Where's Ross Perot? He was a force of nature." Yeah, he decided to run. He got backed into it, kind of with Larry King. Larry uh-huh. kept poking him. He said, "Okay, I'll do it if people want me to." And it was just a pickup game as he tried to get a team around him. And he, from I mean, truly, the bad news bears right. go to Washington and. Even as immature as we were to try to figure out how to run a campaign, he got 19% of the vote. Right. There's that feeling in real America that neither party satisfies what they want, and they want a third party. But I think what people have to realize, our system just didn't gear it up to do a third party. Right. My father did it through sheer force of nature and his personality. But now they've changed the rules. You can't get on a ballot as easily as he did now. So I don't think you'll see a third party. I don't think so either, except for that middle road would be the road if somehow you threw out all the 20% on the left and the 20% on the right, and then we can get That's some. it, but you're going to have to go through every state gonna to get registered on the vote. And every state party has made it tougher to get registered to vote. I mean, to get a third party on the ballot. So yeah. it, it's just difficult to do. 
And what, well, it, I think it's a normal pendulum of our political history. Right. We've kind of gone too far left. We've gone too far right. And it's going to balance out. And I think you've got incredible men and women running. Yeah. The question is, can they get the momentum? I mean, very good people put themselves up to run. It's just difficult to get through the primary. It is. So back to real estate. Talk about Poland. And I'm really curious, particularly because of what's going on in the Ukraine and what how they're viewing both your work there, mm-hmm. but then also these global things that we're talking about. Uh, yeah, we went into Poland and we really I mean, Poland is like the Texas of Europe mm-hmm. and Poland is very affordable. And the, and the Polish people are very ambitious and they're very aggressive. And when you go to Poland and talk to our team, they've all lived under communism mm-hmm. and they're not going back. No. And by golly, they want to build for their family and they see their chance now to have prosperity in Poland. And Poland's booming. So why does Poland boom? You know, the wage rates in Poland are like half that of Germany. So you can put all your warehouses on the German border, right. have them in Poland, less tax, less segregation, get them built. Because Germany really is hard to get zoning for a warehouse. <laughs> They're very anti-industrial. That's why it goes into Poland. And you've got a better labor force. They work harder, less cost, and you truck into Germany. So it's a pretty simple And it's model. a porous border a por- there. So. It's, it's all part of the European Union. Right. And the European Union, I mean, basically, when we started, the highway system wasn't very good, and the airports weren't very good. Well, now the highways have all been rebuilt. The airports are superb. Mm-hmm. The European Union is good at infrastructure, and they brought Poland into the 21st century. And the Poles are very, very pro-American, and they're very pro-U.S. military. And our military is making big investments in Poland. So as an American, Poland's a great place to be. It's a good place to do business. And now you've got the Ukrainian challenge, and you would think you'd worry be building in Poland now with the war in Ukraine, but wars bring huge amount of money into a region. Right. And so the demand for warehousing is going up. Think of all the food and all the, all the aid and everything going into the Ukraine and the distribution in Ukraine that was destroyed that now goes to Poland uh-huh. to feed Ukraine. So uh-huh. it's interesting how I keep waiting for Poland to slow down, but our team, we're still leasing space and we're doing well. I would bet that's the case. I think if Putin had another 40 years and he's had some victories, then Poland might be next in a domino theory, but that's just not going to happen. Our political leaders were shrewd enough to say, we're going to stop Putin in Ukraine. Right. He will not go any farther. And NATO said, we're going to stop you in Ukraine. You're not going to go any farther. We didn't believe in the World War II appeasement philosophy. Mm-hmm. We learned our lessons. Now, I mean, Sweden's joined the team, Finland's joined the team, NATO's right. as strong. I mean, Putin has unified NATO. Yeah, he sure has. He's made NATO backfired. stronger. Yeah. And it really has backfired. That's why he's already lost. Mm-hmm. Everything he thought he would gain, he has now lost. And he's decimating, it, it's decimating his military. Yeah. And his men and his tanks and his equipment. I mean, it, it is brutal. And we saw that they weren't that capable. They're not as capable as we thought. Yeah. And people complain about, gee, how didn't we know? And I go, look. I'd rather overestimate the enemy than underestimate. Mm-hmm. We overestimated Saddam in Iraq. But, you know, you don't, the enemy has a, always has a vote in this deal. Yeah. And I'd rather be cautious and overprepared than defeat. And what you, that's what you're seeing now in the Ukraine. Yeah. So a couple more topics and we're going to get out of here. The, your website says a big part of your business and approach is next generation technology and forward thinking infrastructure. Well, from our technology background, yeah. uh, but we have mobility innovation zone. And so our, our program at Alliance is 
how do we know what the next generation transportation is going to be? And so if the, when the autonomous truck comes, I want to understand the autonomous truck, mm -hmm. and I want to be the first person to build warehouses with autonomous trucking. Yeah. Because the truck might need something different than a driver, a truck with a driver. And I'm sure it will. Mm -hmm. And so that's a simple one. Now, if we're going to go to drone delivery, what kind of warehouse are we going to build? Probably we'll start off having drones in the parking lot. A little practice. Right. But one day our buildings will have drone landing pads on the roof. Of course. And we're going to have delivery systems from the docks up to the drone, and drones are flying off. And, again, I'd rather be with the drone developers. I'd rather be in the room. Mm -hmm. I'd rather be designing the buildings right. with them so that our product is always ready for the client base. When I go to one of our great clients and they mm -hmm. say, what's this drone delivery? I say, look, glad you asked. Come to Alliance. Come to the incubator. We'll show you what we're doing. And that we're building a great mobility incubator at Alliance. And, Matt, what's great about Alliance is you can build these companies backstage. Right. And you can practice on our warehouses. You can practice in our residential areas. You can practice in multifamily. You can practice with our hotels, our retail. And you're all within kind of the Alliance package. But then when you go out in the real world, you're trained up. And so we've had two or three companies start at Alliance, then they moved to Silicon Valley. They're all ready to go, and they hit Silicon Valley, and then they boom. Right. And so that's what we're doing at Alliance. And, and to see the drone products and what Google Wing is doing uh -huh. and this delivery systems that are coming, it's very, very exciting. Yeah. Question about climate. How are these technologies affecting our ability to hit the climate crisis and carbon crisis? It, it depends on how you, you want to count. It's battery. It's electric. Right. And so you get that kind of credit, uh -huh. but then where's the battery made? You know, Chinese batteries don't bring you a lot of, a lot of environmental benefit. Right. And that's why we want to get the batteries here with a, with a cleaner footprint. Uh, and then the source of energy, you know, we're, we're the largest wind state now in the union. Uh -huh. And so as you recharge here, you get credits because of the wind. So it's clean and it could remove some trucking, but if the trucking is now electric trucking, I'm not sure what the benefit would be, except I think it's more pure convenience of getting product. I mean, you'll have product within four or five minutes at your front door with because the, they're going to do five-mile delivery rings. Right. Uh, and so with you're in that five-mile ring and you want – right now it's light product. You know, it's, it's aspirin, coffee, hamburger kind of stuff. Clear to your front door. So it's more, it's, more, it's more kind of fun. Yeah. It's more kind of a gimmick. Yeah. But one day it won't be. And the, what's serious, though, is you've got drones now flying – uh, organs uh, throughout LA. So organ transplant, you'll you'll find you'll harvest an organ in one hospital, they'll right. put it in a drone, LA traffic is bad. Right. That drone will ship and zip to the next hospital, land, the doctors are there, they'll take the organ and put it into the next patient. Oh my God. You're, so you're, that one is real, that's life saving. Yeah. And that is a great technology. And it's cheaper than having a helicopter drone. I was gonna say you're a helicopter guy, but thinking I mean, of stuff wants to get from point A to B that's small. It, it, it's perfect. It's perfect. Now, yeah. the question is, what does the airspace look like? Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're now investing in a company, in a, in a venture fund called Up, that invests in all the next technology. How do you enable drone delivery? How do you enable air taxis? And so the technology around airspace, how do you manage the airspace? It's a really exciting industry, and trillions will be you know, made around this industry through the decades. And again, we want to be at the front, and we want right. to make sure our real estate product is ready. Right. So the last question on leading voices is always, 
advice for a young person getting into the real estate business? I think I've heard it in the last 10 minutes right. of all the exciting things that are going on, but what do you tell a young person? I think for a young person, it's a very, very exciting business. And, and you'll know if you love the business. And if you end up you know, driving land on the weekends to think about your next deal or driving buildings on the weekends trying to figure out what I can do with it, that, then you're a real estate developer. Mm -hmm. You're really, it's in you. And right. so you want to love it. You want to have passion. And what's great about our industry is you cannot have a great city if you don't have great developers. Totally you know, true. We are the men and women that build our cities. And it's our creativity. It's our energy. It's our risk mm -hmm. to allow these cities to be beautiful and great that really develop these beautiful societies. We do the homes, we do the neighborhoods, we do the parks. Right. Where would a country be without a great developer? When you go through communist block countries, right. you can say, didn't have any good developers here. <laughs> I mean, boy, they, they, there wasn't a Gerald Hines running around in you know, Eastern Europe 30 years ago. There weren't these great men that gave great product and it was ugly. Right, totally true, totally true. And it's interesting because the level of innovation also towards that development for the next generation of people because we're gonna be in a different world in 20 years and 30 years than we've been in the past. And it's so satisfying to drive by and see your work. Yeah, of course. And to drive by with your children and say, this is what I do. Yeah. And so your children can see it, your, your spouse will see it. I mean, it, it is, it's so satisfying and it is so good because you're delivering you know, jobs and taxes and great buildings to a community and you make your community better. And you can go to bed at night knowing I've really given back today for what yeah. I've done for my city. Wonderful. Totally true. Thank you. Matt, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.